Welcome to the one within all to another episode of Interverse Podcast. I'm your host, Chance, and in our quest to better understand the cosmos and our place in it, increasing our comprehension of the creators who came before us is of capital importance, as the analysis of ancestors leads us to answers about ourselves and our present moment potential and the possibilities of the future. Is human civilization progressing in a uniform pattern, building on itself with a little backsliding here and there? Or is our chronological development ruled by cyclical forces, with peaks and troughs of higher consciousness that fall down into darker ages, only to eventually restart our ascent up the monomyth's great mountain, regaining our godly selves at the top of eternity's sine wave? From looking extensively into alternate opinions on the good old days, it's my opinion that the chronological cover-ups and lies agreed upon that comprise most authorized textbook teachings on antiquity seem mostly concerned with pinning society's evolutionary processes on the great men and their wars that fill most of our school days notebooks on the subject. And online conversations around these Things often tend towards high-octane speculation and assertions built upon assumptions with little substance anchored in certainty. Thus, one of the things I enjoy most about a returning guest for this episode is his grounded approach to archaeoastronomy, his studies and teachings tending to always bring things back down to earth by keeping the conversation centered on ancient artifacts, languages, and the universality of the great celestial scripture in the sky comprised of stars and constellations. In the last year, John McHugh has joined the Interverse podcast twice already with a fantastic revelation of the celestial nativity scene of Christ as it appears in the night sky and a deep dive into the symbolism contained in the Pegasus Square constellation. Both topics derived from his long running research presented in the book, The Celestial Code of Scripture, the astral cipher underlying the miracle stories of the Bible and Quran. But as groundbreaking and truly exciting as that book and the many secrets it reveals may be, in this conversation we're shifting gears and jumping continents to explore the other major realm of John's academic career in studying Southwest Native American rock art through the ages. As always, John comes thoroughly prepared and I'm excited to see what he's got in store for us this time, as this is a subject I know a lot less about. So if you are just listening to the audio-only version of the podcast, you might want to pop over and see the video 
and catch these uh, slideshow images that John's got prepared. But you've been warned, you know, I'm sure it'll be good to listen to, too. So let's get into this thing. Everybody, welcome back to the astonishing investigator of stellar scriptures and revealer of the megalithic monomyth, John McHugh. Welcome back, buddy. Thanks so much, Chance. It's wonderful to be back on, uh, wonderful to be back on Interverse. And uh, I hope uh, I can share some of my passion and some of my uh, research with you into Native American rock art. Uh, and, I'll, you know, it's much different than the uh, linguistic, linguistic stuff I do. I almost live in two worlds. W- one of my worlds is archaeoastronomy and astrology embedded in the Bible and the Quran. And the other one is n- n- not linguistic at all. It's it's preliterate and it's dealing with Native American rock art, which is incredibly enigmatic and primal. And as you'll see in the next few slides. So uh, the presentation, you know, we had been going back and forth and I thought, well, I could share a presentation with you uh, entitled uh, Native American rock art through the ages, especially from the Southwestern perspective, which is my expertise. Uh, Native Americans throughout the the continental North America made rock art, um, but uh, I my specialty is just in the southwestern uh, Native American rock art, especially connected to the Four Corners area of you know Arizona, uh, New Mexico, Colorado, and Utah. So, so who am I? Well, I just I. Again, some of these slides have been sliced, spliced together from other presentations I've done. So I'm a licensed archaeologist. I, I'm an archaeologist for the Utah Rock Art Research Association and Utah Cultural Astronomy Project. I'm a specialty in archaeoastronomy. It's how ancient cultures utilize and understood astronomical knowledge. But I also have a K through 12 teaching license. And I lead uh, much of what I do is I lead youth groups on excursions to learn about steward and document prehistoric Native American rock art for the Bureau of Land Management, State Historic Preservation Office, National Forest Service, and other entities. So when I go in the, it's ironic, I'm either in an ancient studies room with a bunch of lexicons surrounding me, or I'm in the field looking at rock art, either researching it from an archaeoastronomy point of view, or cataloging, finding it and cataloging it with a group of students. Um, so here's an example. These kids right here, there's one of my, I have an archaeology club called the Shovel Bums. And these kids found a petroglyph. There's a petroglyph of a deer right there that's really ancient. Um, wow. So you're just, you're finding stuff as you go. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Some of the, some of the kids are finding stuff that have never been discovered by an archaeologist before. So if you're 12, this is the last word in entertainment. You know, so well, I think it's cool that you guys are making discoveries. I didn't realize that part of it. I just wanted to point out how the, you know, the question of authenticity of dating or the potential of some petroglyphs being later forgeries and stuff of that nature, it it becomes a lot less of a likelihood when you're finding new stuff. You know what I mean? Yeah. And the other the other thing that's really important, and I don't know how familiar your researchers are, but I mean, some some of the kids that I teach present at uh, the the year, the the Utah Symposium, the Utah Rock Art Research Association Symposium, because they're trying to get as many lay people and students to uh, preserve and protect this rock art because it gets defaced all the time. 
People shoot it out with bullets. They spray paint it. They they carve their names and initials in it. So these kids uh, are going out in the field with me, and they're, they're, one of my students, she is demonstrating her atlatl throwing ability in one of our meetings. And um, so one of this other boy right here, Cyrano, he did a science fair project on what killed the mammoth. Uh, his theory being that it was the atlatl that made the mammoth go extinct. So, so the kids. I'm the author of this lesson code of scripture, but but when I go in the field, I'm pretty much looking at Native American rock art and uh, several early chapters in that book focus on Native American uh, celestial mythology and rock art. So the the big tool of an archaeologist when you go out in the field and you do an excavation is stratigraphy. The the premise being that the, the deeper down you go, the older the material is. And that's pretty much all across the globe. In rare occasions, you'll have something called reverse stratigraphy because you're digging into someone, an ancient trash, trash mound, and everything ends up getting dug up in reverse. But that's how you tell time. You go down, and the old, the further down you go, the older things are. So what we're going to be looking at tonight is, uh, so if you go back in time, Utah, it's it's named after the Ute, the Ute Indians, Utah Indians. And as you go back in time, you have the, the Puebloan period, and then it goes back to a time called the basket maker period, and the archaic period, which is before farming, and then to the Paleo-Indian period, which is, that's the megafauna hunters. They're the ones that are hunting mammoth, mastodon, giant ground sloth. You so, know, I want to point out, just because yeah. I'm very interested in the, the language side of things and yeah. the, like philology, right? Yeah. So one of the... One of the phonetics that comes up a, a lot when studying the potential of a sort of universal religious or priest class system. I say universal as in maybe not like a, an empire per se, but something that was able to touch many or all parts of the world at a certain depth in history. And one of the uh, one of the names that comes up repeatedly, whether it's the ancient Hebrews or even the Jews of India is this word Yuda or Judah. Yeah, and when you see Ute, I mean, Ute, Utah, it's yeah. basically Judah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you could get a Uda. yeah, you could get that into it. Yeah. That vowel in the front, they, they uh, interchange. And T's and D's are the same letter. To, exactly. To, you know, whether you're aspirating or holding the air in when you say duh, and then tuh, you blow the air out of your mouth. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting there's something in linguistics they refer to as false cognates so that you're, I, I have a research partner named John Lundball and he is outstanding. And uh, if you've ever seen his videos there, you really should have them on your program. Um, but uh, he, he is just remarkable at making connections. And I'm always the party pooper. I'm always like, yeah, but could we get that published in a scientific peer reviewed journal. <laughs> so <laughs> that's where the trouble comes in. You know, there's a, a lot of these cognates and they're so hard to prove. And you, you got to wonder how many of them are actual and how many of them are, um, you know, are, are, uh, you know, false. And, totally. Yeah. I, yeah. I look at it like maybe that's not enough for a claim in and of itself, yeah. but yeah. it's one point. And if you get maybe three strikes that connect the culture, especially yeah. language wise, yeah. Say 
eight, 10, 20 words that have similar root meanings uh, from one civilization to another, then, then you're cooking, you know, but (laughs) so, but it's key to just be able to pick up those connections, even if it ends up being a false cognate, because if you can, if you find enough, then uh, you have a lot more of a case. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting you say that that's in essence what the the Book of Mormon is based on. I mean, that's, that's what the the Book of Mormon is based on, based on the idea that uh, there was a Jewish civilization here uh, in free literate times. Uh, And the only thing they wrote on were these golden plates that were retrieved by an angel. And that's why no one can find them anymore. Well, Joseph Smith translated them and then they were returned to the angel. That's what the, how the story of the Book of Mormon goes. That's the, again, I'm not Mormon. That's the general overview that I learned when I was, I was, I went to BYU. So I know a fair amount about just the, the overall beliefs of the LDS church. Well, it is interesting. The Mormon connection being that they are very centered in Judah. I mean, Utah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it is interesting. There's a scholar named Barry Fell. And I can't remember his book. It's like, I forget. It's like America Lost or something like that. He was a Harvard oceanographer who made some pretty strong arguments for uh, for people from the Middle East having showed up and having examples of Arabic in North America, uh, in rock art writing. You know, so it's interesting. But, uh, but I, you know, I'm just going to keep going through the slides because I got a bunch of them. So when you think of Paleo-Indian times, Native Americans probably came here either over a land bridge or through the whole or or through boats. Through a, there's a theory called the rafting theory. Probably got here about 25,000 years ago before present. And up until, you know, 6,000 B.C., they were they were big game hunters, as in mammoth, mastodon, giant ground sloth. They had to avoid saber-toothed tigers. Um, then about the, the climate warmed, about 6,000 BC, you get what's called the in, the, in Southwest, the desert archaic adaption, which is people living uh, an archaic lifestyle. All the fauna and, and flora are the, the modern varieties that you find today. That evolved into the basket makers who started to rely on uh, agriculture, the three sisters, corn first, then beans and squash. And that's I'm I'm real rough here with these dates. So roughly zero to seven hundred A.D., give or take a few hundred years, depending on where you're at. Of course. Yeah. It's not like yeah. a civilization, a certain year rolls around and they're like, all right, now we're doing we're doing everything different. New era. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah it's always yeah. gradual. Right. And so like Pueblo one, you know, roughly 700 AD. It started earlier. Some areas it started a little bit later. And then it gets to the big Pueblos that you refer to as like Chaco Canyon, where you've got like five story Pueblos, uh, places like uh, 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 some of the Pueblos in, in Chaco Canyon are 900 rooms. I mean, just gigantic. If you can ever go to Chaco Canyon, it's literally an outdoor museum. I mean, just gigantic pueblos, kivas, uh, all all around, in the middle of nowhere. And that evolved into the Pueblo Three period. That's where you see a lot of the the cliff dwellings, like you see at uh, Mesa Verde. That's a Pueblo Three 
uh, adaption where people were building in cliffs as if they're hiding from something, as if they've got to be worried about uh, just uh, some kind of, uh, you know, martial, they've got martial concerns. They're worried about what seems like getting robbed, getting attacked. So people start building in cliffs. There's a picture of Mesa Verde right there, one of the Pueblos. Yeah, it seems to coincide with, um, you know, uh, many regions of the world had a all of a sudden a trend of building underground, building in tunnels and all that. You really see it in uh, ancient Anatolia or, or modern day Turkey. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've seen, you know, I know what you're talking about, I, although I haven't studied that uh, in depthly. It is a, it is a worldwide thing. It's pretty uh, just a. Again, it's a ubiquitous human phenomenon, it, possibly because when you live underground, it's really easy to control the heat. I mean, it's, you know, it stays pretty much the same temperature. You're between like 65, 70 degrees all year round. You know what I mean? Even if it's snowing out, it's easy to warm with a little fire. But one of the big mysteries of what, you know, what we're talking about tonight is you had just hundreds of pueblos in utah and colorado and they all just get abandoned they're just abandoned almost entirely by 1300 ad and they they the native americans move down and they they conglomerate in the pueblos along the rio grande river and uh some of the other like acoma pueblo zia pueblo and then in the uh, the Hopi mesas in Arizona, so that's where the pueblos are today. But in 1300 A.D., a lot of those populations were living in Utah and Colorado. Is the big mystery is why did they leave? Why did they make this massive migration and reestablish these gigantic pueblos that you see now? At, like the most famous ones, probably the one at Taos, right? The one right there. That that's Taos from a few years ago. My wife and I go there frequently. There's a photograph we took. And you can see it's, a, you know, it's three, four-story Pueblo. <laughs> it was built in like 1100. They started the foundation. So it's a pretty old house, you know, a pretty old apartment. Um, so if we can begin, you know, there's a your typical petroglyph, right? So, you know, here's another petroglyph you see in Utah, really ubiquitous, right? All over the place, thousands and thousands of these rock art sites and they are enigmatic they are just they just suck you in almost the way a uh, an impressionist painting or some modern art sucks you in because you're trying to figure out automatically what does it mean that last one almost feels like the silhouette of some kind of sumerian character yeah. Yeah, it does. It does have that look. Yeah. And you got to wonder if that's if in our brain we have certain images that we just reproduce for the human figure. You know, uh, there's another petroglyph there. What looks like what could be like a sun, maybe there's a what looks like a birthing scene. The, the figure on the left could be some kind of female deity giving birth. Native Americans were known to give birth standing up and use gravity uh, as as the means to pull the, 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 the baby, the, the newborn out of the birth canal of the, the mother. So there's what you had up and uh, actually your original screen. That's called uh, Newspaper Rock in Canyonlands. Dates, I mean, that 
that rock art, if you go, it's the, the oldest stuff's at the bottom and then it works. It gets younger as it goes up. And uh, you can see bison there. You can see some of the, there's a Native American on a horse. When you see a Native American on a horse, you know it's after 1500 AD. So you're, you're looking at very young petroglyphs there. And the further you go down on that rock, the older they get. Mm, so that six yeah. spoked uh, wheel in it is not a, a, an ancient symbol necessarily. It, there, could there be an are actual wagon wheel symbol. There are ancient symbols that look like that, and, but that could be a wagon wheel for real. Not um, long ago, I talked about. I did a couple episodes talking about the Ora Linda book. I don't know if you've heard of that. Mm-hmm. So it's. No. You know, it's largely considered to be uh, forgery by, you know, mainstream academia, but it's a it's a manuscript that was allegedly handed down in a family that contains a different history of the world since the deluge. Oh, wow. And one of the things that's fascinating about it is the the script that's in it is they call it a Sanskrit or Sanskrit. It's kind of like Sanskrit. Yeah, in a, the word and yeah. the entire alphabet, all the letters and numbers are derived from segments of the wheel with the six spokes. Interesting. So yeah. just parts of the circle and par- and some of the spokes yeah. are taken to make each letter. And it's very, you know, it looks very similar to the English alphabet or, you know, yeah. the, the Latinized alphabet. Very, it's an interesting book. Yeah. <laughs> I'll, say, I'll say that. Yeah, what's it called again? The Aura Linda book. Aura Linda. I'll have to I'll have to check that out. I get I get so busy uh with just my teaching responsibilities and and then the research I do that there's just so many minutes in my day. You know that's why you know, I like my job, John, because yeah. I get to uh talk to the researchers who dive deep into the one thing, but I get yeah. to like taste out of every person's uh batch yeah, <laughs> and, no, and see wonderful. how they connect. Uh, and that's wonderful. And so Native Americans, are, it's not a language, but it's, it's certainly picture writing. And that's how Native Americans view it is picture writing. And I just want to just a disclaimer for all your viewers. If you do come out to the Southwest and you or anywhere in the West and you, you do go to see rock art, remember um, that Native Americans still make it, that it's considered sacred. It's, it's sort of the equivalent of what, a, a, a Christian would think of as statuary of Mary and Joseph in a church or the stained glass that you see in a Christian church, a Jewish synagogue or an Islamic mar- mosque. So you never touch it. Your The oils on your finger can cause it to erode faster. And you should never divulge the GPS coordinates of rock art unless you're doing it with you know, professionals, or you're doing it with like a certified group, like the Utah Rock Art Research Association, um, which which is a great organization to join. It's about 25 bucks to join. You can go on hikes led by various uh, experts that belong to the Utah Rock Art Research Association. I usually use one, lead one or two um, of the hikes a year. I usually use, lead this the summer solstice hike, and we stop at some summer solstice site so that people can see the interplay of this shadow and sunlight that that uh is definitely part of a summer solstice marker as part of the calendar so like what is rock art is it a language you know native americans consider it picture writing but it's not a writing per se it doesn't it doesn't elicit 
words for speech, but it's definitely incredibly enigmatic and tells a lot of pictures. So prehistoric Native American rock art is just part of the archaeological record. You see it wherever you find Native American Native American archaeological sites. Um, it's considered sort of part of material culture, the way an artifact is. You see a, an olla there, a, a water jug. You see a mano and matate for grinding corn on the right. An artifact is any object you can pick up. A feature is part of an archaeological site that cannot be picked up. It's part of the landscape itself. This is a picture of a pit house. Pretty sure that one's from Mesa Verde dating to like 600 AD. So that's what, it, by the way, that's what a pit house looks like when you're just walking out in the field. So archaeologists see that and like, oh, there's a pit house, there's a pit house. And most people just walk over that and you see a bunch of rocks. So that's an example. There's two pit houses right there. I don't know if you can see them. And of course, you never dig up. Not only is it illegal and you can get arrested and get fined $5,000, but it destroys the archaeological record uh, for archaeologists. And it also is considered an you know, it's blasphemy to Native Americans, the idea of, of digging up what they consider to be sacred. Um, so whenever you do an excavation, there are usually Native Americans there sanctioning the work. There's just another example of mono and matate for usually for grinding corn. This one's a feature, though. It's the matate is built right into a giant boulder. So rock art's considered a feature. This is a place called McConkie Ranch in Utah. There's a facial scalp that somebody's had their face cut off. You can see it hanging from that figure's elbow right there. Man, um, the feet are really interesting on that. Yeah, they're gigantic. And yeah. Do you think that uh, some of the rock art gets there from pareidolia in the pre-existing rock uh, structure? Some of the rock structure gets worked into the rock art. Yeah, that's um, what I mean. Yeah, it's it's worked into the rock art, but but clearly, I mean, they, I mean, when you look at rock art that has any kind of humanoid figures, they they appear to be doing some kind of religious rituals. And I once had earlier this year, uh, had a guy on named Bernie Taylor who wrote a book called Before Orion. And it was about the, it was more about cave art uh, and it's more European centric and North Africa centric. Yeah. But his theory was that the pareidolia that the ancients would see in the rocks would lead them to create the art that they put in there. Interesting. And it was like, uh, a test of the shamanic capacity of an individual, whether huh. or not they could see the layers of, you know, the, the head of the deer becoming the body of the man becoming yep. the crocodile. And like, you know, there'd be more than there's multiple dimensions of interpretation laid up yep. in one piece of art and their work. They would just slightly uh, <laughs> adjust or scratch out one thing. And then what was already there would come to life to them. And his theory was that the, Pareidolia of rock art was what led to the constellations being mapped out. Yeah. That they would, they started out in the rock art and then started applying that skill to the sky. And uh, that's where the astrotheology was born. I find yeah. that to be an interesting possibility because yeah. it seems more natural to start to see pictures in the rock before you would start to see pictures in the stars. Yeah. I, I, 
I, I don't, I, I can't go one way or the other. I mean, because I'm focused on archaeoastronomy, I always put the stars first. And that's my, that's, yeah. that's my, you know, prejudice. Um, and the reason is, you know, we think of astrology today as the human tradition, but most people, they have fun with it, but they don't believe in it. But regardless of how you feel about astrology, it's grounded on real empirical science, which is the idea that the changing of the stars one degree every night eventually changed the seasons, that new star figures brought new events occurring on Earth. And that's where the idea comes from. And and that's really empirical. They're looking at the stars and saying, wow, the, this star shows up. It's going to frost pretty soon, you know, and um, so. Oh, yeah, we're we're deep in the uh, we're in the deep end of astrology mysticism here. on Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> the so more the more you look, the more you yeah. realize that it is an empirical science. It's not a pseudoscience at all. I mean, maybe some of the way the horoscopes are presented in your Sunday paper are yeah. more pseudoscientific, but the uh, there there is an elaborate clockwork to nature yep. and the sky is the the marker of that clock yep. and it's just on us to figure out the what it's what it's yep. telling us and signaling to us not that it isn't happening because we yep. do see the cyclical pattern of nature which is why i asked that question at the beginning yep. of the introduction about yep. time in the macro you know are we is it cyclical or is it uniform and that's one of the beefs i have with the uh t- typical mainstream academic in terms of history is the uniformitarianism doesn't really take into account the, what I see is the sort of fractal cyclical aspect of how time works, you know, that maybe in the big scale, it's just as cyclical as it is in the year. Yeah. Eliade called it the eternal return. It's the reenactment of all of the, the uh, primordial, the monumental primordial events Every year get reenacted. You still see that in Islam, Judaism, and Christianity. They're still reenacting the same monumental events cyclically, which is very much how Native Americans did it in every other preliterate culture, Stonehenge, I'm sure. So I just want to, you know, I'm just going through the slides here. So whenever you hear the term pictograph, it's a painting on rock. Petroglyph is a carving or a pecking in the rock. Um, so uh so I'll get back to those two figures. The one on the bottom is from Moab, Utah. I used to live about a quarter of a mile from that. It's right by the golf course in Moab, Utah. It's a famous petroglyph. Um, so archaeologists use all these funky terms like anthropomorph for a human-like figure. If it looks like a human, clearly the figure is not a human being in the top. And then they use the term zoomorph. If you're not exactly sure if that's a deer or an elk in that petroglyph on the bottom, you would call it a zoomorph, which they're horrible terms. I hate them, but they use them. And, you know, you have to fill out this form called the Intermountain, his IMAX form, Intermountain Archaeological Computer System. So you have an rock art attachment that you've got to fill out. And that's what my, the kids fill out for the various agencies. Um, and so you have to use these awful terms, <laughs> but relative dating of art. So when you go to a, a, a rock you art, got yourself site, a nice little child labor force there. Yeah, yeah you could say <laughs> that. Yeah, they do. They actually do a lot of the research because they've gotten like, yeah, stand here and tell them, take a picture of where the sun sets, you know, so and don't get eaten by a mountain lion. 
So, so, but uh, yeah, anyways, because you're usually out there, you know, we're pretty far out there uh, when we go out and, and see places. But this one is, this looks like a dry lake bed in, in Nevada. But the, the rule of thumb is when you're looking at rock art, the brighter the rock art is, the younger it is. Uh, so when you carve rock art, it's really white. And then each year, the original material, they call that, that the darkness on the rock you're looking at, that boulder, it's called patina, or they call it desert varnish. And it's, it's a whole bunch of chemicals in the rock that eventually leach back out. So the, the closer the petroglyph is to the original color, the older it is. And the brighter it is, the younger it is. So you can see some of those the graffiti there is like a looks like a GA right on the middle of the screen. You can see that's within the last hundred years. And then you see other petroglyphs that are far darker because the patination has the minerals have leached back through the petroglyph and uh, repatinated the petroglyph itself, making it darker. So here's an example. You look at the petroglyph on the left, that thing, I know where that's at. That's right along the Western shore of Utah Lake, that thing, the person that pecked that may have seen a mammoth. That's how old that that those rakes on the left are. The one on the right of the bighorn sheep, that's clearly pretty young. You know, it might be in two, three hundred years old. It's probably done by a Ute Indian. Superimpositions, the other one, when an image is painted or pecked over an older image. So this is a summer, they call it the Steinecker. Canal summer solstice site, and I did a ton of research at this one, and uh, you can see it's been painted. It's probably about probably dates to about a thousand A.D. It's been painted over pre-existing concentric circles. They look like bullseyes, and they're older. They may be really old. Uh, the because agriculture starts there about two, I don't know, probably two fifty A.D those concentric circles are probably a calendar. And I just would need to take enough time to look at all the alignments and all that stuff. But um, anyway, that's superimposition when one image is painted or pecked over older images. So you can see that image right there is extremely old. It's the same color as the rock. It's totally repatinated. I mean, that thing, they don't come with date tags and we all wish they did. But that thing could be 5,000 BC. Look how white the broken off part of the rock is on the right. So it's just some examples. You see a figure on the left, totally repatinated. You see images on the right. Clearly, the ones on the right are much younger. The ones on the right are about 1,000 years old. The ones on the left, are they've got to be 3,000 years old, I'm guessing. I, I don't know. man. Yeah, it gets really hard to even spot it. On the yeah, rock. it is. You've got to you got to go out at the right time of day, which is often right right at dawn and right at dusk is often the greatest time to take a good look at rock art. You can see the difference in the shading there. Again, a lot of concentric, uh, fi- just uh, geometric figures. I'm sorry, I meant to say geometric figures. Some lighter than others. Again. This is often called great basin abstracts, or sometimes they call it carved abstract style, just great basin abstract, I usually call it. That's what the terminology of rock art enthusiasts is, rock art specialists. Um, some of this stuff is deeply, this, this great basin abstract style is, is associated with uh, 
uh, Paleo-Indian spear points. And so you're looking at that Paleo-Indian period. So again, how did first Native Americans get here? Originally, it was, it was thought that they walked across the, a land bridge from Beringia, which may be one of the ways, but it's also very likely that they rafted here. Uh, it's living, you know, along the shoreline, kind of living a coastal lifestyle. Some may have been just deep sea crossings into South America because some of the dates you have, like at Monte Verde, I think they go back to like, I don't know, I thought it was something like 15,000 BP, uh, really old sites. And if you were in Utah, what you would notice, the dark blue is the up in the top is the Great Salt Lake. There's another lake called Utah Lake, and there's another lake, a giant lake called Severe Lake. And all the other light blue would have been ancient lakes during Paleo-Indian times. And if you could go back and walk, I'm in Salt Lake City right now, but if you could walk outside of my house, 15,000 BC, this is what you would see. You'd see Columbian Mammoth and Bison Latifron at a at a, a pond or a lake, and you have Paleo-Indians using those what they call Clovis points to hunt these megafauna that have now gone extinct. Um, that's a Clovis point. The reason they're specially made, they're hafted onto spear points, and they're meant to do one thing. They're meant to penetrate that hide. You got to throw that thing really hard or have a death wish and run up to a mammoth and ram a spear into it. Put it in perspective. Yeah, good luck. The head of a mammoth, you know, picture a basketball hoop. The top of the backboard at, a, at an official basketball hoop is 13 feet tall. That's about the top of the head of a Colombian mammoth. So this is some scenes, some paintings of what it may have looked like to hunt. That that one's not real. There's no way you could throw a spear with your arm like that and penetrate the hide of a mammoth. You'd have to use an uh, atlatl. You'd have to either have to run up and ram it in. Or you'd have to use an atlatl. This is and a, for the people who aren't know about yeah. the uh, atlatl. It's if I'm not mistaken, it's like a a sling for throwing spears. Yeah, right? spear, spear thrower. Yeah, th this is a realistic image. So Paleo Indians would have had atlatls, these spear throwers. You would have been able to stand 10, 20 yards back, and you might have had just you might have had like little kids, like ten year old kids, twelve year old kids, just running up and giving you more spears. And you might have had 15, 20 guys involved in the hunt. They would have been throwing spear after spear after spear after spear. And I like this one because you can be assured that somebody didn't come back for dinner. And that guy that's underneath the tusk of the mammoth right now, that guy isn't coming back. That's what it looked like to hunt a mammoth. It would have been brutal. And then you would have had to follow that thing for a day or two until it bled to death. And then you would have to send up, have a runner or send up smoke signals to uh, bring everybody together because now you're going to eat for two months straight. You know, there, there's a picture of an atlatl. You can see the, the, it's just a stick. You take a spear and you hook it into the, it's got a hooked end to it. And, and you see the picture on the bottom when it allows you to throw, I can throw a spear about 80 yards with an atlatl. I can throw it about 10 yards with just my arm. So it's really, can really zip. It's actually shown in the rock art. So whenever you see that 
thing that looks like umbrellas, like uh, uh, unopened umbrellas on the bottom image. They're atlatls. On the top, you can see that long stick with two holes in the in the one end. That's where your fingers went through the loop. The long image is actually a spear that goes into the atlatl, and they used it, you know, way past Paleo Indian times. They used it up until you know, like a thousand A.D. Because it's a great weapon for for killing other people. If you want to kill human beings, it's a really good weapon of war. Do you know where the the word atlatl comes from? I, I thought it comes. I thought atlatl is an ast. I thought it's nautle a nautle word. I think it is too, because atl means water. Yeah. To, in yeah. nautle. Yeah. Nautl. I, I think the Aztec coming from the Aztec. It's just it's yeah atl not yeah atlatl is a. It's come from the Aztec word for throwing stick. This is what it would have looked like. You would have had to butcher the mammoth. There's a diorama of what it might have looked like. But that's what would it would have looked like in America in 16,000 BC. That's what life would have been like. It would have been like southern Alaska. It would have been a lot colder. You would have been hunt. You would have just been moving around following mammoth, living very much like an Inuit Indian. Uh, you know, Inuit people of Southern Alaska. Uh, only difference is you're following megafauna. They also hunted, bison, hunted bison antiquus and bison uh, latifron. Bison antiquus, to give you an idea, the bison on the right is a modern day bison. Bison antiquus is much larger. And they use a special kind of point called a falsum fluted point. The, the hafting in the middle, that flute that's taken out is so you can haft it on a spear. You can see a Native American there painting, holding an atlatl with a spear. There's no chance one Native American bring, could bring down a bison because There's no way. There would have had to have been 20, 20 other hunters hiding in the, in the woods or behind rocks to ambush a bison anticus. Bison latifron, similar. They had these gigantic eight-foot-wide horns. Somebody's not coming back for dinner. That's probably what it lo- would have looked like. You would have had, uh, you have evidence of domesticated dogs during Paleo-Indian times, and they would have probably helped in the hunt. That's what a bison latifrons would have looked like. It would have been brutal. And what's amazing, so this is a petroglyph near Bluff, Utah, in southern Utah. Well, I want to bring it to the the spiritual for a moment and point out in this type of world, if, you know, this is really how these natives were subsisting, it, it basically demonstrates the importance of the spiritual realm and the shamanic practitioners of their tribes because part of their role would have been to confer with the spirits and find out when and where to look for the hunt to make sure that the hunt goes successfully or that you know the animal is willing to spiritually willing to offer itself up to the tribe because without that (laughs) without that sort of permission from nature and the elements maybe the hunt doesn't go so well Yep. Or, you know, maybe they don't have the protection they need and they lose some guys like yep. it was a uh, everything would have revolved around this important survival ritual. And thus yep. their spiritual practices would be highly connected to it. Yep. Just and like then, agriculture and spirituality yep. and the agricultural uh, civilizations became connected through, you know, the astrology and how that would inform 
your sowing and, and yeah. reaping of crops. Yeah, and, and exactly. And part of the problem is, be, unlike the, the cave paintings at, you know, Altamira and Lascaux, a lot of the Paleo-Indian rock art was done out on open face rock cliffs. And many of have they've just worn away. They, they've just, you know, over the years, there's very little of that rock art left. However, uh, near Bluff, Utah, in southern Utah, and you can go see this. You look really carefully. You see this. You see a petroglyph. You see a couple images. But uh, let me just enhance it. You can see on the left, that's a mammoth. That thing's a mammoth. You can see the domed head. You can see the tusks. You can see the trunk, the prehensile fingers. And then for some reason, they showed a bison, Anticus, bigger than the mammoth, which is not how it would have been. But for whatever reason, that's a bison anticus. That thing is just a hump on the back. It's just so accentuated that that fat hump is uh, in this petroglyph, which is remarkable. And this is what it It might be back to that thing I mentioned about the pareidolia, that there were certain features of the rock that they were working around. And that's how you get the scale discrepancy. Yeah, exactly. And or or if they were showing, you know, maybe they're trying to show distance, you know, the the mammoth was farther away. The the bison is closer. Maybe we're trying to hunt the bison first. So we're going to show it bigger. But you have this is the, the actual. You know, the actual panel itself. But uh, yeah, really remarkable. You can see there's a couple mammoth in the picture. Mammoth two. There's one in the middle there. Mammoth one is over on the right. Um, so, so Native Americans, they arrive in North America, 25,000 years BP. If you ever see BP, it just means before present hunt megafauna for almost 20,000 years. And then, um, so I know I, I hate to be a party pooper. I know everybody's concerned about global warming. And I know that I too, we're, am we're not about, about, uh, about carbon emissions, but but what causes glaciation, the warming and the melting of the glaciers on the North and South Pole is what's called the Milankovitch cycle. And it's uh, obliquity, which is the tilt of the earth, which vacillates back and forth for over a 41,000 period between like 20, 22.1 degrees and 24.5 degrees. When it's further tilted, you get more direct sunlight at the poles and you get a melting of the 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 polar caps, the ice caps. And then um, eccentricity is the the Earth's orbit, the elliptical orbit varies from a very close to a tight circle, very close to the sun, to a very long ellipse. And that occurs over like, I don't know, like 404, between 100 and 400,000 years. And that's combined with precession of the equinoxes, which... uh, lays either more or less of the land mass pointed towards the uh, solstices during the warmest time of the year and the coldest time of the year. And and due to that, you get more warming or more cooling. So that's what glaciation is connected to. Now, let me be clear. I'm not saying that the earth is not getting warmer due to human carbon emissions and that we need to be concerned about that. That's true, too. What I'm saying is that the glaciers are connected to, they have been connected to this pattern of of Earth's tilt, Earth's distance from the sun, which varies, 
and precession of the equinoxes, and then something else called albedo, which is the color of the earth. How much of it is white and reflecting sunlight? How much of it is dark and absorbing sunlight? And that's probably what ended the last ice age at about 6,000 BC. There's just another example of it. If I find it funny that even uh, in <laughs> the modern sciences, they're using terminology from alchemy, <laughs> the albedo yeah. phase. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? Yeah. No, it is. It's, uh, you know, science and religion is a lot more connected than people give it credit for. Um, oh, I love pointing that out around yeah, here. Yeah. <laughs> All of modern science is built on the occult yeah. of the of the ancients. Yeah. So. So let me let me just again, because I don't want to get shut down and have you get shut down on YouTube. I'm not saying that. that <laughs> I know that, you have to yeah, say that. <laughs> yeah, I, we get I, it. I, wink, wink. I, I believe that global warming is occurring and it's it's connected to human uh, carbon emissions. It's just whether or not it's going to cause a permanent extinction and how soon that could happen. That That's up to debate. And but we're that, not afraid of it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So just so I make sure I get published the next time I send a paper out again, I just have to say that. Fair enough. Okay. I get it. So, so this warming trend ends the the uh, the ice age, the last ice age. Um, and go, we go from the, the uh, late Pleistocene into the Holocene. Mammoth, Mastodon, Bison, Antiquus, Bison, Latifrons, Giant, Ground Sloth, Sabertooth, Tigers, they all go extinct. And you have the archaic period, or out here, we call it the desert archaic. It's the desert adaption to the archaic living in North America. All of the animals are the modern species, antelope, mule deer, elk, you know, jackrabbits, cottontails, yuccas growing, uh, rice grass. And so Native Americans are living in what we would call wiki-ups, archaic brush structures that are later known uh, as wiki-ups. And what's interesting to me, and I love this idea, some of the Native Americans never stopped living in the archaic. The Paiute Indians, the Goshu, the Ute Indians were living hunter-gatherer lifestyles as desert archaic people up until Europeans encountered them in the mid to late 1800s. So here's a Paiute wikia. Here's a Paiute woman grinding um, pine nuts outside of her wikia. Notice she's got a flat structure there called a, a, a winnow. It's called a winnowing tray. Here's another wikia. This is Paiute Indians in western Utah. Here's Paiute wikiups, late 1800s, little structures. Remember, they might have only lived in those for two or three weeks while they're gathering a certain kind of seed or a certain kind of nut or fishing at a local lake. So they're not meant to be long-term structures. They're meant to live in two, three weeks every year, and then you abandon them and come back to them next year for the same two or three weeks to exploit the same food. Another wikiup. Another wiki up. And these archaic people, we know that they were storing, they were beginning to store wild food because at the San Rafael Swell and other places, you had these storage cysts that are built into um, what appear to be cliff overhangs. So these storage shifts, st- uh, storage sh- cysts are uh, 
most readily preserved in cave sites, which is why they often are associated with caves. It's just that they probably eroded away or got covered up out in the open air air sites. And one of the things that the archaic hunter-gatherers do is they map on. When you go out and you see rock art, you look at it and you intuitively say, that's a map. That's that's directions. That's got to be what's going on. You can see what look like streams, what look like centers of habitation, what look like, uh, you know, fields. And they probably are. And that's what you're saying. That makes so much sense because it's a big wilderness out there with no GPS. None. That's what's amazing. And people don't get that. A Native American would have walked up to that boulder that I'm showing you guys right now. And they would have said, oh, this is this. Oh, this is this. Oh, this is that. The same way you look at someone wearing a yarmulke and you know what they believe. The same way you see someone walk by with a crucifix and you know they're Christian and you know the story behind that crucifix. They would have looked at those those petroglyphs and they would have told a story that we just don't know what the story is. We don't have the cipher. So one of the things that's interesting about archaic is so these archaic figurines start to show up and the real ghostly look. And now we're getting into the spiritual shamanic side of things, Chance. But so between 5,600, 5,000 BC, you get these clay figurines and all of a sudden they start showing up in pictographs called the Barrier Canyon style. Now, let me let me hang with me for a moment. Look at that image on the right. Look at those. Uh, clay figurines on the left. One of the theories about that Barrier Canyon style, it's real ghostly. Notice some of it has uh, eyes and some of it doesn't. The theory is that the images without the eyes, well, that this is a portal between spiritual worlds. One of the spirits is coming out and other spirits who have been meandering across the globe are going in through that rock. So they're going into that rock and one of the spirits is coming out of that rock, which is really mind-boggling when you think about it. Well, if you're going to be mapping the environment, I suppose you would also want to map where the entrance and exit to the underworld might be. Yep. And there, these uh, Barrier Canyon style BCS, if you want to get fancy and you want to be cool and say, it's not the boys band from Korea, it's BCS style, right? But um, so so the the BCS style is, uh, Barrier Canyon style is this ghostly you can see it right there. And it's where I, I get once or twice a year, I get called by people that uh, they want me to talk about how these are, you know, aliens and what the aliens looked like when they landed in their UFOs. And I, <laughs> I, I, it's not that I don't think people should be trying to pursue that avenue. It's just that that's not my gig. And um, there's a lot more tangible evidence that would suggest that it's sh- shamanic rather than aliens from other planets Uh, hell when you even get into the deep dive into the uh little gray men you find the overlap with fairy folklore and shamanic spiritual demonic activity is so strong that you can't even distinguish them from the uh from one another so yeah maybe uh, they came out of the rock you know maybe those little gray beings came out of the rock you know or some something of that nature and these portals are, we're calling them UFOs, but they're portals to another world. But get, getting back to this Sparrow Canyon style, you can see how just otherworldly these figurines are. Um, Native American elders often say that if you don't see arms and legs, you're dealing with a deity. 
So here's Barrier Canyon style. Again, really tough to date. This this panel, the panels I'm going to show you probably date between 1500 BC. At the latest, they're probably 200 AD, more likely in the BCs though. Can but, I want to comment on the deities not having arms and legs. This yeah. actually really strongly reminds me of the concept of the seraphim, which oh, is the, okay. the, you know, the flying flaming serpent. Yeah. As somebody, yeah. you know, in my, my other job, <laughs> I work mm-hmm. with people's energy bodies for helping them in health. And yeah. if you were to strip someone's physical body away and just kept their energy body, you would have actually something quite a lot like this. You know, if there, if it was a purely spiritual energetic being, the similarity to a serpent or just like a column with a head on top is pretty strong. And even to have the left and right leg still there would actually apply because the left and right leg are pretty energetically uh, individualistic to each other. So just find that interesting to me. I see a similarity between the concept of the, the seraphim, the flaming serpent. Yeah. And just spirit bodies in general. I mean, these are spirits and there's, there, there's no, when you walk up to this, the first thing you think is this is a spiritual sacred site. This is, this is a uh, pristinely um, hallowed. It's, it's, it's holy. And you look at more, again, you're looking at masked figures. You see snakes. Again, you see a white snake on the left side of your screen. You see what looks like some kind of, uh, living, maybe a dog. You we didn't see, even plan to do this right on Halloween. Yeah, yeah, no, really. And and you see figures inside the figure, as if there's spirits living inside the spirit being that you're looking at. Um, again, you see eyes and masks. You see what the heck that one thing? It looks like a striped penguin. Newsflash: There are no striped penguins in the American Southwest. I have no clue what that is. No legs, no arms, just ghostly figures. Again, now you have a figure with arms and legs. You have a curled snake, what looks like a star. Is that Quetzalcoatl? You know, is that is that a Venus? Again, you see a snake. You see one figure on the left there handling a snake. And you see snakes in this figure and what look like rakes. Close up, look at the snakes on the right. You see figures that almost look like uh, part human, part bird-like in the on, on the right side middle there. You see more snakes, more rakes, what looks like water coming down. Remember, water would have been the key. You're in the middle of the desert. Whenever it rained, all the edible plants would bloom and blossom like rice grass, which is uh, one of the foods they would exploit, pinion nuts all kinds of wild, wild potatoes and carrots. But these just some of the modern Pueblo Indians in the last 150 years. I mean, look at the mask on that figure, that Pueblo Indian mask uh, at a Kachina dance, one of the Pueblo Indian Kachina dances. Here's Apache mask dancers in the late 1800s. Some Navajo uh, Ye'i dancer, spirit dancer. You know, another, you know, Navajo, you know, Yeti dancer, spirit dancer. Again, you think about those masks I just showed you and the images you're looking at in the rock art. Notice the horn figure on the right. You see a giant hand and you see what looks like grass growing out of it. 
Well, that's what it is. It's a hand with rice grass, but look at what's to the left of it. Some kind of bird, and then you see a rabbit. That's not representational. There's something, there's some conjuring of the bird life, conjuring of the spirit world, conjuring of the rabbits, conjuring of the rice grass. We got to make these things plentiful if we're going to live. And by the way, in this Barrier Canyon style in the desert archaic period, when there's hunter-gatherers, there's no violence. You don't see any violence. There's no idea of land ownership. You never see shields and war scenes and scalps being taken and heads being cut off, as you see when agriculture starts to show up and land ownership starts to occur. Uh, this is uh, Look at uh, those, those big white circles you're looking at there. They're probably Barrier Canyon style. They're probably winnowing trays for pinion nuts or some other kind of uh, seed that they've got a winnow. And you can see this is at, uh, some of the artifacts at McConkie Ranch. The one on the right is a winnowing tray, about a thousand years old. That's probably what that figure is showing. So I just wanted to point that out. Again, there's an, a Paiute Indian from the late 1800s. She's got a winnowing tray there on the right. This woman right here and the Paiute Indians actually using a winnowing tray to break the shells of pinion nuts, which were a, a really delicious food source with a lot of protein. This is the Rochester panel in uh, southern Utah. You can see it has got thousands and thousands of years. What looks like a rainbow, if you look at the top of that rainbow in the middle, you have a Barrier Canyon petroglyph. You can see that little ant-like figure with the antenna. Notice just to the left, uh, on the left side of your screen, you see a really gigantic owl. All kinds of other uh, beasts that would have been necessary, maybe deer, maybe bighorn sheep, maybe uh, antelope, which you see around here all the time when you go out in the country. So the Hopi say that whenever you see parallel lines or rakes in the rock art, it means rain or water runoff. You see it all over the place. There's, again, Barrier Canyon style rock art. Notice you see rakes. You see snakes. Uh, there's you got, it, you got a dog there. You see uh, Barrier Canyon ghostly figure. Definitely shamanic. Bring the water. Bring the rain. A lot of snakes. And one of the theories about snakes is that, um, so when you're, when you're dealing with snakes, you're dealing with flash floods. Snakes move the way a flash flood does after a rainstorm in the, in the desert. You see all these little flash floods appear. So whenever you see rake or rain symbolism, it could be to make that rice grass you see in that image, make it grow. That might be what this shaman is, is doing in that image. You know, yeah. When, like, when I look at this, I just see all the same components of the monomyth in Eurasia as it appears, Yep. you know, like, I can't remember who it was where there's reports though, from one of the ancient uh, Roman authors of, I believe in Northern India, Bacchus being worshipped as a serpent called Eve. Oh, in Hindu, interesting. Yeah. In the Hindus chanting Eve, Eve, Eve. Wow. So the, uh, the word Eve in the Hebrew offshoot languages typically means life. Yeah. You know, and wow. ba 
Bacchus, <laughs> one of the yeah. roots there is Bach, which is a, a river or a stream. There's a lot of overlapping symbolism between the whoever the savior deity is with yeah. waters and rivers and the sun that you know there's a there's a parallel symbolism going on with the the life-giving qualities of the sun and the life-giving qualities of water and i you see that very evident in especially this barrier canyon style finding it really interesting yeah i mean the first thing when you go out if you once you hike away and you lose phone your cell phone contact the first thing you start thinking about chance and everyone on the interverse interverse podcast is man i need to find a drink of water here I got about 48 hours to figure this one out. Um, so although with cell phone reception getting better and better, I, I go into, I lose cell phone reception all, all the time when I'm in the field. You know, again, you go back to that flash flood thing in snakes. So there's an image of, that's clearly not a representational snake. That's a horned serpent um, that looks like some kind of celestial body above the humanoid figure. And then I want to point out something in this figure. This is more Barrier Canyon style. Look at the big eyes. There's these circles with like what look like feathers coming off of them. The Hopi Indians still make these. These these are called prayer feathers. They're called pahos. They're prayer feathers. They're they're a a kind of offering that uh, Hopi Indians leave during their ceremonies. And I'm going to try to track this one down to the kind of uh, there's circular pajos in that image right by that being holding the snake right there. You can see a being holding a snake. Again, on the left, the yellow being uh, in this figure, you see a snake. And then to the left of him, you see what looks like a figure who's made of rain. More rakes. Uh, just more rakes and snakes and what looks like water, water runoff. You can see what's clearly a horned snake spitting something out of its mouth. Remember, spitting something out is a symbol of getting rid of the bad in you. It's getting rid of purging yourself of sin and evil. And it's often done in Native American ceremonies. You take certain foods in or drink certain things because it makes you spit up, makes you salivate and spit up. Again, I have Sinbad, this one's called. You can see a snake over the figure's head. You see little snakes, water runoff, what looks like some kind of deer figure on the left, just totally shamanic. You feel like you're in a ghostly spiritual world when you're looking at Barrier Canyon style stuff. So, the Are there any snakes in uh, North America with horns? Well, yeah, well, there's rattlesnakes tend to look like they have horns. They, mm-hmm. they have really uh, sharp eyelids. And they look a little bit like they have horned. They have horned. But the horned. actual horned snake is a North African family, right? I think so. Yeah. That, that, but rattlesnakes do replicate that look uh, because of the way their eyes are, uh, the vipers, their eyes are uh, situated. The, the Hopi have a major dance that's designed to bring rain. It's the snake dance. These guys are dancing. I mean, this one's not a poisonous snake, but they're often dancing with, you know, diamondback rattlesnakes and sidewinders. And, oh, my God, it's unbelievable. And there they are. And so they have one, the, the, the snake dancer himself is usually dancing with a snake in his mouth. The snake, the, the, 
the person next to him, the priest next to him, has a feather and he uses it to soothe the snake. So they're actually controlling the actions of the snake as if you're controlling the actions of the flash floods that that water your field. Too strong of a flash flood, your corn gets washed away. Not enough flash flood and it doesn't get watered. You're controlling the flash floods by controlling the movement of the snakes. You know, these are just various images of Hopi Indians holding all kinds of snakes that could kill you. You know, the modern, the average modern would see what we're talking about right now and be, you know, maybe their reaction would range from horrified to just scoffing at like primitive behavior. But I'm over here like, yeah, I can see how that would work. I can see how that would actually, you know, why, how you could, uh, how, how on a magical premise that you, might be able to see a cause and effect from your behavior in a sense. Yeah. Well, how about baptism? The washing away of sin by pouring water over a baby or any other adult washing away your sins. Or what about just the Eucharist? Jesus saying, this is my body and this wine is my blood. When you take that in, you own a concept of how bread and wine nourishes your body. And Jesus is just saying, now take that idea, but apply it to your spirit. It's the same thing. It's thinking by analogy. Native Americans are doing it. Christians are doing it. Jews are doing it. Muslims are doing it. Buddhists yeah, I mean, Jesus is the good serpent, the brazen serpent. Yeah, yep. And, this, is, this is universal symbolism with the yeah. serpent. And even the serpent relating to water, when you scratch below the surface of the monomyth, it is there in whatever continent you're looking at. Yeah, and for especially out here, that the, the movement of the snake, if you've ever seen a flash flood out here, if you ever get hike in the desert and you experience a thunder shower, you just see water. Just you're under a cliff rock overhang and you just see water. It's just the it turns into a thousand little waterfalls. It's astonishing. And that's what this Snoopy, Hopi snake dance is trying to bring about. Are there any other things that maybe haven't come up in this conversation that you could see as interesting correlates or similarities between European, Asian, African with these uh, Southwestern Americans? What stands out to me is so much of the Pueblo Indian religious life is is built on these kachina dances, and they are spirit beings. They're they're not like Christian angels. They're exactly like Christian angels. They literally are inter- intermediaries between the deities and mankind, and the deities and mankind. The difference is um, in ancestral Pueblo belief. They're part, they're present at the dances, and they actually have a home dance where they all go home in July, where they dance these spirit beings home, and then they come back at the winter solstice. And then they're present on earth again, and then they go back, you know, late in July, and then they come back, and it's this cyclical, you know, eternal return. It's the, the reliving of spiritual life. And uh, which I wonder is, if that has to do with anything pertaining to constellations that fall below the horizon during half of the year and then are visible at night in the sky in another half of the year. 
Yeah, and you got to wonder how much of that has been just concealed from anthropologists, because I, you know, the early interactions with the Spanish, especially along the the Rio Grande pueblos, they they were really mistreated. So they do most of their their uh, just their rituals in total secret. They they really they're they're mum when it comes to talking about what goes on in the Kiva and stuff like that, which is why there's no photographs. There's only rare photographs for about 10 or 20 years where they allowed photographs and they just said, no, you, you guys, you're just going to use this for things that, that are uh, mercantile and just to draw attention, to make money. And they're like, we don't, we don't do it for that, you know? So, um, but yeah, the, the idea of these Kachinas being the equivalent to angels their function is identical. And I, I find that remarkable. Yeah, I just, I do. So. Is there any kind of calendrical system that they've disclosed to us? Cause I find again, to compare the Aztec to say the Egyptian, the 360 day calendar with five intercalary days is a pretty specific type mm. of astronomical, astronomical uh, setup. Yeah, they would, they embedded themselves in the calendar by by watching the sunrise, there was a sun priest or a series of sun priests who watched the sunrise on the horizon, watched it move to the north, then it would stop and it would move to the south. And the big rituals are the turning of that sun. If you if you don't turn the sun, you're going to freeze to death at winter solstice and everyone's going to die or everyone's going to burn up at summer solstice and everyone's going to die. So those big rituals at the winter solstice and the summer solstice were crucial in uh, Native American, you know, ceremonialism and religious belief. Man, good stuff, John. Well, I'm looking forward to the next time we're able to talk about this stuff. So do you have any thoughts in conclusion for our audience and uh, tell them ways that they can find more of your work? Yeah. Well, you know, I, I would love, I'm not trying to ingratiate, you know, just kind of. Oh, I think we're, we, we lost you there for a moment again. You with me? Got, I'm, can you okay. Me we're now? good now. And yeah, yeah. Please ingratiate away. I love, I love having you as a regular. Yeah, no, I see no, no reason not to good outlet for your work. Yeah. Well, my, my hope is that the universe uh, viewers will will really feel the season, be present at, at this All Hallows Eve that we have coming when the veil between the living and the dead uh, gets very thin. And when you feel ancient people or you have certain really strong premonitions, it's probably not an accident. It's probably someone uh, who loved you that has this is now deceased, whose spirit is present with you in your life. So grab onto that and let them guide you. Beautiful, man. Yeah. Yeah, uh, (laughs) This is definitely the crowd that is maybe even a little overboard on finding the meaning in every little mundane thing. But when you open yourself up to those possibilities, that's when you feel things like an electric electricity uh, running through up and down your spine in that moment of realization when the epiphany strikes that, oh, this meant that, or that butterfly was talking to me, you know, or it was my yeah, grandfather yeah. showing up in the form of, yep. you know, this insect or whatever. And everything, you know, either, either everything is sacred and 
of God or nothing is. And so I see it as the former that there's meaning and a message in all that you can interpret your life just as if it were a dream to be interpreted. And the symbols of your external world experience are just as relevant uh, for your personal myth as the symbols would be coming from the pages of the Iliad. Yeah, well, I appreciate that, that, you know, compliment, but it's, again, these, these picture, this picture writing is sacred stories on stone. They're really sacred stories. They're, they're, they're spiritual. They're talking about migrations. They're talking about sacred cycles. You had to go to a certain place. You had to exploit a certain food source at a certain time or you died. You know, so you better be in touch with the deities that can lead you there and can make things work out for you. And I feel like we rely too much on ourselves today. We rely too much on technology and just be present in the season, All Hallows Eve season. It's it's a wonderful time of the year. And where can they find uh, more of your work, John? Well, I'm just been just doing a lot of research on just sent out a article trying to get a peer reviewed article on the star of Bethlehem. So I I'd love to come back and do a star of Bethlehem presentation at Christmas time. If you were okay with that chance. Yeah, man, that that is definitely not too soon. We had that great uh, nativity podcast last Christmas. Let's do that again. We'll book that real soon. Yeah. And I can do a real, I can real do a real tight one. I have a lot of better pictures that are easier to, comprehend so you don't get overwhelmed with the linguistics and if you wanted to we could do a you know a native american uh native american one focusing on the winter solstice because there are some petroglyphs that appear to market and it was a crucial time of the year for native americans i could show a lot of really cool you know maybe 60 70 slides of really cool um artifacts and really cool rock art that shows how native americans uh, view the winter solstice as a sacred moment and how close it is to Jesus' birth. They believe it's the rebirth of the year, just like Christians believe it's the rebirth of Jesus, who's kind of standing in as an analogy for the year. So I thought that would be a kind of a fun, fun thing for us to work on. Right on. And then other than that, if people are hungry for more, they should just pick up the celestial code of scripture, right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm working on a second book right now, but uh, it's not Ooh. it's not finalized yet. Good stuff, man. Yeah, right on. Well, thanks for being here, John. I'm really uh, grateful, and we'll we'll get another one on the book soon. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, Champs, and thank you so much, Universe Watchers, for for in, just being present and letting me share uh, passion with you. Thank you so much. Cheers. All right. Bye bye. Awesome people. John McHugh. Give it up for the great John McHugh. I love that guy. Honestly, uh, what I told him, I think before the recording, I wish every guest came locked and loaded with so many slides and such an in-depth knowledge of their subject. Had a lot of fun with this one. I hope you guys did too. Definitely need to be watching the video for this. Some of the slides went by a little quick, but hey, that's what you got the pause button for. This is a topic I didn't know much about. And learned quite a bit and was happy 
I say, I guess I should say I was happy to see <laughs> some of the fingerprints of the universal priest system here. And, you know, the question is still open in my book. Are these symbols and archetypes innate to human consciousness? And we just find them and pull them out of nature because that's what they actually mean. And the meaning is innate. Or is this cultural diffusion, right? Or are these artifacts forged by the same people that forged artifacts in Sumeria? Not saying that I know what is and isn't forgery and what is real, right? I don't. (laughs) But those are the three possibilities that come to mind. Uh, I am... Really not sure. It's a toss up for me between the innate contents of our psyche in a Jungian sense or cultural diffusion. Probably, you know, likely that it's both. It's some of both of those category A and B. So good times with John. Definitely a unique show. We're actually now planning to talk again a lot sooner. We have some topics lined up. He's just a good guy. He's just a really good guy. (laughs) He was, we were talking a little bit after the recording and he gave me a little more insight into why he's playing, you know, he's so prone to diplomacy and playing so nice, right? Like I get it. So hopefully that it, you know, if, if any of that rubbed you a little funny, how he brought, (laughs) brought up global warming and he's like, I, I have to say this, understand the world of, the academic and how easy it is to lose the standing and the ground that you may have spent a whole career trying to gain in terms of publishing. And why would it matter where you could or couldn't get published? Well, let's be honest. A lot of the armchair researchers that maybe we're familiar with in the internet world and the podcast world, uh, they got their clout through YouTube or whatever. They know they don't necessarily live up to a high standard of research or they're not necessarily going out into the field. Right. There's a certain thing. It it is what it is with gatekeepers, but that the academic establishment and the government bodies and the tribes themselves, when it comes to the natives, there are thresholds that you have to be allowed through, you know, to go see these artifacts, to actually do the field work and not to mention the people that have a higher standard of research and work ethic that are more likely to read and also publish in the academic journals means that there's a certain level of playing nice that somebody has to do to be in that world. And I respect that, you know, it, it is what it is. Uh, I also enjoy the researchers that just give a big middle finger to all that and say, this is how it is, or this is how I see it. <laughs> I'm thinking of Dylan right now. I have love for both sides. We got to look at all of the people's perspectives to get a handle on what this world is, what life is. And I dig it. John was talking about off off air, just the what sounded to me like a nightmare (laughs) of trying to get published in certain academic journals and thinking you're accepted and then finding out you rubbed somebody the wrong way because a lot of the people involved with this particular journal or, or institute have this particular religious leaning and they, they wear a certain size of hats and yada, yada. So I get it. Um, just wanted to give that disclaimer to all of John's disclaimers. He might be a little closer to your way of seeing the world than you think, but has to play in a certain realm of <laughs> uh, official, official statements versus privately held thoughts. And that's, you know, 
doesn't take any value away from what he just covered with us. He just showed us, show me the money. You know, he showed us the artifacts. He showed us the rock art. Lots of fascinating stuff there. And I think everybody got their own unique journey out of looking at this stuff. And it was a big whirlwind tour. But just imagine having John as your teacher and you're a middle schooler and you're going out doing Indiana Jones shit, adventures off the grid, no cell phone service, digging, taking pictures, all of the above. I think that's pretty cool. And I'm sure a certain degree of his diplomacy is so that he can keep that particular job and status as well. I mean, this is a guy that does what he does for the love of it. And you can tell. I think that's so awesome. Uh, Second hour, not exactly sure where it got divvied up in terms of the free hour and the second hour. But, you know, we just got more into what we were into. (laughs) I'll just leave it at that. And if you are interested in getting the full show and you want to support me, it's rockfin.com. R-O-K-F-I-N.com slash interverse or patreon.com slash interverse. Either way, uh, support the podcast you like. Get a little more of it. By a little more, I mean twice as much. I think it's worth your time. This was a cool one. We're going to do more really soon. And I liked that at the end, he gave that offering for us to consider the time that we're in, you know, Halloween time and the veil being thin and to look for the messages from the other side, because I think they're there. Me and my wife had an experience like that uh, earlier. Uh, I don't know. Last week, week and a half ago, it's kind of emotional, but maybe it's worth bringing up again because I've had a few people recently congratulate me on our news. And I know that months back I'd announced uh, that we were pregnant and probably have only said it once or twice that we sadly lost that pregnancy a little ways in. It was early enough in that it's maybe not as tragic or difficult as it would be further along for some people. And we received a huge outpouring of love and support for that. And I appreciate that so much. You guys have been awesome. Uh, and, And since then, we we were at this place around here called the Butterfly Palace. And so we're just in this greenhouse type place with a zillion butterflies. And sometimes they kind of land close to you or on you or whatever. And I had this thought about how, well, a lot of times people will assume, I say assume, well, they'll feel like they're receiving some kind of connection or communication from a, a passed over loved one through a butterfly or an insect. You know, I'm sure I'm not telling you anything you ever heard before. <laughs> and so I had this thought that our, the spirit of the child that we were, you know, expecting, and in my opinion, still expect just on a different time timeline than we thought that, you know, we, we're we going to do it again and we'll we'll meet that being. But I had this thought that the, that child would be the next butterfly that interacted with us in a meaningful way would be um, reach out from that child the spirit and like moments later this butterfly got all up in our biz and was landing on our nose and then our on our lips both of us me and jen and (laughs) she started crying and you know i was feeling it too so that's an example of the little things that 
are waiting for us, but maybe we got to get a little further outside of our box, like go outside or go somewhere where the, the living spirit of nature is in a bit more flow and abundance and, and concentration. Right. And then those experiences become accessible to us and they become consistent and constant. So I invite you guys, you know, before it gets too cold out there, get outside, get on a hike, go camping. Hopefully I take my own advice, but at the very least I saw some butterflies. <laughs> uh, I also asked John when he was born, like what year or uh, what part of the year. So if anybody out there was wondering, John's a late cancer, early Leo or uh, yeah, on the cusp basically, but he's in the cancer Leo cusp on the cancer side. So you know, he's feeling it, <laughs> you know, he's feeling all the stuff, the mystic emotions, and he does a good job being an academic and, and presenting everything all right. But, you know, he's feeling it deeply. I like I really like this guy. Looking forward to more with him. Could not recommend any more highly than a 150 percent recommendation. <laughs> That's what I recommend his book at the Celestial Code of Scripture. I enjoyed the heck out of it. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. Huge keys. I'm sure it's going to be like, you know, referenced in future books that I write someday. I'm sure of that. So check it out. Read it. Enjoy it. Go back to previous podcasts we've done with John, uh, two others, both very worth your time, in-depth and thorough. And other than that, I hope you guys are having a great end of October. Please support the show with the, the patronage or the rockfinage. Or check out Tippecanoe New Herbs. Get yourself some great herbal remedies. Use Interverse as the coupon code. Also, I've noticed a few people buying uh, from Clive DeCarl, the excellent supplements that he provides through my affiliate link. I appreciate that as well. Great way to support the podcast and get what you're going to get anyway and kick some back to yours truly. Help me support my little family here. Love you guys for that. Love you guys just for tuning in, though. Like it's. Honestly, a big synchronicity and miracle that you even found our niche little conversation club here on this channel and that you're of the mind and perspective and consciousness to understand and enjoy what we do. So I just want to pat you on the back. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you. It sure is cool to see the world through these through these eyes. <laughs> I know you know what I'm talking about. Like, wow, everything's magic. Everything's magic. So with that, I'm out. You guys uh, have a good one out there and be good. Don't forget, be good because it's good to be good. And I'll see you on the next one. Much love. Peace. Peace.